Hello, I'm Simon Talbot. And I'm Wendy Dean. And this is Moral Matters. So today we're talking to Jenny Andrews, who is a public defender in Santa Barbara, and Jeff Schur, who is the training director for the National Association of Public Defenders. And they're a team who are advocating for wellness and public defenders, who, you know, public defenders um, do indigent defense in our legal system, and they work in an intentionally adversarial system. And I've been working with them for the last year, um, and we thought we would invite them in for a conversation. But Simon, unfortunately, was not able to join us because clinical practice um, was, of course, a priority. Um, But it was a great conversation. Um, You know, Wendy, one of the interesting things as we've been working with these folks from the Association of Public Defenders is just how similar some of the struggles they have are between clinical medical care and public defense. And we don't think of public defense and medical care as having a lot of similarities. In fact, a lot of people in the medical world would think of them as kind of polar opposites. But these are professionals that struggle with systems issues in doing their jobs well. Right. Well, it seemed like a very strange um, place to find similarities initially, because a lot of times doctors and lawyers are kind of like oil and water, or at least we're, we're acculturated to think that. And in fact, what I found was that they really resonate with a lot of the struggles that we have. And they're thinking about the same things, and they're coming at it from a slightly different approach. Well, I'm really looking forward to hearing this. Let's listen. Well, Jenny Andrews and Jeff Scherer, thank you so much for joining us today on Moral Matters. Um, unfortunately, we're joining without Simon Talbot. He is in the operating room, but that's that's the breaks with a clinician. Um, so I would love for you guys to tell a largely clinical audience and a non-public defender audience what it is you do every day and just it, like introduce us to what your role is and um, what a public defender does. Jeff's pointing at me, so I guess I'll take that one. <laughs> so uh, a public defender uh, represents poor people who are accused of crime. When someone is arrested and brought to court and told these are the charges against you and asked, can you afford to hire an attorney? If they say no, uh, and the court says, would you like us to uh, appoint an attorney? And they say yes, then we're the ones who are appointed. Um, And in ideal situations, even before that, we know that people are about to have their first appearance and are meeting with them and preparing for that first appearance where a lot of important things get decided, like whether they are released from custody and how much bail is set. And from that point forward, we are representing them, um, communicating important information uh, about their cases, learning from them information about their lives and their priorities for their cases, and then trying to use the education and skill that we have to advocate for the priorities that they have in their cases. Great. And Jenny, where do you where do you practice? So I currently practice in Santa Barbara, work at the public defender in Santa Barbara. I've been a public defender in California since 1996. So I worked previously in Sonoma County and before that in Alameda County. All right. And Jeff, 
What about you? I am in Versailles, Kentucky, which is a small town outside of Lexington. And my current role is I am the training director for the National Association for Public Defense, which is a, an association that has over 22,000 folks who work in public defense, both attorneys and folks who are not attorneys, all, this, all the people who are important to our clients. Before that, I was the training director for Kentucky's public defender system. And before that was a trial attorney in Kentucky um, doing public defense and also did sometime doing post-conviction, post-disposition work with juveniles is where I started out with in Kentucky. Yeah, so NEPD is a really interesting organization, and you're both involved in that. What is the, um, what's the makeup, you know, 22,000 people in the organization, is it all public defenders or is it made up of, of lots of different backgrounds, folks with different backgrounds? The, the vast majority, 99% probably, are people who are involved in direct representation of indigent clients across the country. There are a wide variety of different types of public defender systems out there because when the Supreme Court ruled in Gideon that the government had to provide an attorney, they didn't say how, and they didn't provide any money for that. So across the country, there's a whole quilt work of different systems of how that happened. So some of our members are like I am in Kentucky, where there's a statewide public defender system, and the public defender system has bought into NAPD for all of their staff. Others are like Jenny is, where it's a county system, I believe, or a city system. Um, a lot of our members are private attorneys who do contracts where a certain percentage of their work is representing indigent clients. So in that way, we're, we're a mix. What unifies us all is doing work for indigents who are accused and face the possibility of, of jail time. I found out about you guys about probably almost a year and a half ago um, when my niece or my, my cousin's daughter, so maybe she's my first cousin once removed, um, I, I never can keep those straight, but um, she told me um, that the article that we first wrote in Stat News had been passed around from some of the lawyers groups. And one of the groups that was passing it around was the public defenders. And what they were saying is, if you just cross out physician and put in public defender, that the article really seemed to resonate with folks in the public defense field. And so I found that absolutely fascinating, and I would love to hear from you, Jenny, because you're nodding. Um, what about that spoke to you, or what, what really resonated with you in the article? So uh, I'll just pause and say thank you for, for writing that article. That was pretty much my exact experience, that I read it and thought you can cross out physician and put in public defender and this fits exactly this chronology of people who dedicate themselves in school and dedicate all of this time um, and and then feel this experience this incredible pain where they're not able to deliver the level of service that motivated them to go into the profession in the first place. Um, and this concept of, of deep soul wounds when there are these kind of people in authority transgressing, um, you know, moral beliefs. Motivation admittedly was probably um, somewhat personal. Uh, I had an experience 
in public defense, seven years into public defense, where I left and didn't practice law for three years uh, and then came back. Um, so I left in 2003 um, and came back in 2007. And since 2007, I've been sort of chewing on this question of how to do it differently and how to sustain the work and how to do it without you know, coming again to a point where I feel like I, I can't do it and take care of myself and, and have to leave. Um, and I had an experience which I've called burnout for a long time um, that caused me to, to leave public defense. And it was really painful. Uh, it was a very, very painful thing to dedicate a lot of time and, um, and just heart to, to something that felt very important that I'm really dedicated to. And then to leave, and not just to leave, but to feel like it was a failing to leave. Like the reason that I left was this sort of individual inability to have the strength to do the job well enough. And I think that's where this moral injury framework really resonates and feels really important is that that stepping out of this framework of like, am I good enough? Am I tough enough? Can I like sort of withstand everything that comes at me and prove that I can do it is, is not useful in a lot of ways. And when you feel like the answer is no, it's really painful. And when you feel like you're inadequate, it's really painful. And shifting and looking at, well, where are the obstacles? Where are the systemic obstacles that are preventing me from being able to do my job well and being able to represent people at a high level and give them the representation that they deserve and that they're entitled to and that I went into this work for? It's a much more useful framework. Um, it's, it's, it's less personally painful, and it's also much easier to move forward and identify here are the things that, that maybe could shift and support people better. Um, so, so for me, um, it definitely, the language resonates, the framework resonates. It's, it's been incredibly useful. Oh, that's great to hear. So what I was struck by when you were talking is that as it, it's very similar to what we hear with physicians in that folks who get to the point that you were at as a public defender have figured out resilience. You have really figured that out. And to think that somehow along the way you've, you forgot as you, as you transitioned into that public defender role, you forgot all of those things that made you so resilient really kind of defies logic. And so looking at it from a different perspective um, may be helpful. I wonder, Jeff, do you have, um, you know, a different way of looking at it or, I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, it's interesting to me when you said that people have gotten to the point where Jenny has, who've practiced for a while, um, have figured out resilience. Um, makes me think of, we, we teach something called the public defender motivational triad is what I call that. That's based on a variety of people's theories about what motivates public defenders to do this work at a high level. And that's something I've been teaching for years, and I think moral injury uh, fits into it in an interesting way that Jenny can, I think, is, can talk more about how that applies. But I'll, I'll talk about the triad. You know, the, what we see, the people who come to this work and are motivated to take on this kind of challenge, whether they're attorneys or the other folks who work do this work, social workers, investigators, um, come at it from three different points of view that work well for our clients. One are the people I call the counselors. Um, they're social worker type people who really thrive on the individual one-on-one -on -one relationship with they have with their clients. 
And their best days are really when they make a connection with one human being and make a difference in their life. The other for public defenders are the warriors. And these are the people who love the fight. Um, and I think that this is an area that we talk about more as different for us than physicians, that we have, we're in a system that is about a fight against somebody else who's trying to do damage to our clients. There's another human being, not necessarily an illness or a, a virus. Um, but so there are people who come to this work who love the fight um, and love to fight for the underdog against the man. So there's the counselors and the warriors. And the other one I'm calling the reformers or the activists. And these are people who are about the big picture and they want to change the system. They want to fight and change the world and making it a better place. And I think, you know, from my understanding of moral injury, where that really fits in and the, the people who are coming from that point of view have the hardest time in terms of the moral injury aspect. If you became a public defender because you want to change the system and you see an unjust system and you want to change it all, when, if that's the only way that you're finding satisfaction in doing your work is feeling like you're doing that, that's not going to happen every day. That's usually for most people is a once or twice in a career type of thing where they make a big impact and change how the court system works to get a case that goes up to the Supreme Court, um, something big like that. Where in terms of the resilience aspect and how that plays out in this is that people who've done it for a long time, like Jenny has done it, have, find satisfaction on all three of those. So they may not, they may be feeling the moral injury of not changing this unjust system that they're working in, but they can see the value and what they've done for that one individual client. And even if that client loses, that one client was treated like a human being and got high quality representation. And that they can see that the value of what they did in doing that, or they thrive on the fight and they fought the good fight that day and maybe they lost and they didn't change the system, but there's a value in fighting that good fight and the Don Quixote tilting at windows or at windmills, not windows, uh, the Don Quixote tilting at windmills aspect of it. They thrive on that and that can be enough for the resilience for them. Yeah. So do you find that, that the folks who are the reformers who are able to break it down and shrink the change to its and, and have that framework where it's personal, local and possible are more tolerant or do they still like swinging for the fences a lot of the time? I'm not sure what you're mean by tolerant. Well, so, so that they, they don't get as frustrated. They don't experience the moral injury of the, the kind of abrasion of the system. If they're able to acknowledge the small moves that they make in making changes in the, in the courts. Yes. I, I guess that's about my experience that, yeah, if you're, feeling like I want to go in this and change that bad law and get rid of that bad judge. Those are, those things happen, but they're rare. But if, if you can find the small thing that you made a difference on that day, you may have a good issue to appeal. You may um, do a cross-examination of a police officer who pulled somebody over for driving while the wrong color in a certain town. And you do a cross-examination and you lose that suppression hearing but that police officer is going to remember your voice and know that the next time this happens, they're going to have to deal with you and feel uncomfortable with that. Those can be victories that sustain people who are on the reforming side of things. Yeah, Jenny, um, I would love to hear your perspective on that triad. 
There's a lot of talk in public defense about sort of redefining success, um, you know, and defining success so that success isn't acquittals, you know, which don't come around that often. Um, and redefining success in ways that look like, you know, uh, successful client-centered uh, relationships that really empower clients and, uh, uh, you know, really respect the dignity of clients by, uh, you know, putting a lot of empathy and, and listening into the, the client relationship um, and, uh, and really uh, having the, the person that you represent feel like there's somebody really, you know, absolutely strongly next to them as they walk through this very painful, you know, system where there are a lot of terrible things are, are happening um, to them a lot of the time, uh, you know, and redefining success in, in different ways. Um, but part of, I mean, the other thing that I was thinking when, when you and Jeff are going back and forth about sort of incremental change, um, Jonathan Rapping uh, who started Gideon's Promise, which is how Jeff and I met. Jeff was on the faculty there when I uh, uh, came in and joined the faculty there. Um, he talks about using this model of uh, the, closing the gap um, in terms of looking at, which is really applicable to to moral injury and the way that moral injury takes a toll on people. So if you take a, um, and he writes beautifully about this in his book, probably more beautifully than I will say it. So go uh, have a look at his book. Um, but, uh, but, you know, Gideon's Promise has this mission of teaching the gold standard of representation in public defense. Here's what we want it to look like. Here's what it aspires to look like. Here's the, the level of representation that people are entitled to that we want to be delivering to them. And then in reality, in courtrooms all over the place for a variety of reasons, it doesn't look like that. Um, it's falling way short of that. Uh, and there, a lot of times what happens is that there are all of these um, uh, tendencies to internalize that and feel like, well, that's a personal failing on my part. I wasn't able to deliver what this client is entitled to. Um, and he uses this closing the gap model to do, to break down step by step exactly what you were describing, Wendy, which is to sort of say, well, here's what, here's the gold standard of what we want it to look like. And here's what it actually looks like. What are all the steps in between? How do we make a little bit of progress? How can we brainstorm the things that we could do to move in the direction that we want to and start to recognize the obstacles that are keeping us from doing that and then just keep working in that direction and, and recognize that each step in that direction is important and also recognize that if we didn't get all the way there and we fell short and the client didn't get what they were entitled to, it's most of the time an obstacle from outside and not a personal failing on our part, um, which is really, I feel like, incredibly helpful um, in the way that moral injury is helpful in framing the discussion in terms of obstacles and strategies and not, did you individually have the, you know, strength or resilience or whatever to navigate the chronic stress in your job? Yeah, it seems like what you're saying is that the helpful part of this framework is both frameworks is that it it takes the burden off of one individual person and it spreads it across the system and it says there is no one reason why this person experienced 
public defense or or had their experience the way they did. There are a multitude of of factors that were at play, some of which you had control over, but most of which you may not have had control over. And it's interesting because this this is not the first time that we've heard the conversation around, this is the gold standard that I trained to, that I expected to be able to provide. And when I get out into practice, the reality is I can't get there because there are so many external impediments in my way. And that becomes a big discussion among trainers. We tend to default to teaching to the gold standard, but then when we're knowing that when we're doing that, we may be setting people up to go back to a situation where they just it's impossible to do that because their workloads are too high. And you know, there's a pressure to teach people how to function in the reality that they're in um, versus that gold standard. And that's where, you know, John Rapping's approach of of dealing with the gap and addressing that is, is a way that we try to address that. We still want people to know the gold standard and help them get a step closer to that, you know, then might be the normal practice in their system and where they can get from that. Um, but for me, as a as a professional trainer now, I don't do cases anymore. There's a, I, I don't know if you've dealt with vicarious moral injury, but that's what I feel. Um, that I'm I'm teaching people, you know, I want to teach them the gold standard, but I can't, or I need to make sacrifices in in how what we are able to teach people based on the realities of their situation, and that they cannot, they don't have the time and the resources to do what they really need to be doing in those cases. Yeah, so I, I think what that brings up for me is this is this concept um, of a dialectic, which is that you. You believe that people are doing the best they can in the circumstance that they're given, but at the same time, you also hold a profound belief that they can do better. And I think in moral injury, that's that's the real challenge, is we know that we are, well, we should know, we don't always know, um, that we're doing the best we can given the constraints that we're working under. And sometimes what that causes people to do is to give up. And what we're really trying to say is give yourself some compassion that you're working in a very difficult environment. And at the same time, know that there are ways that we can change this, that we can, that we can still do better. And it may be incremental steps. It may not happen all at once in one fell swoop. But if we just kind of chip away at it again and again and again, we will move that needle. I think that's the big challenge in doing, you know, both Jenny and I do a lot of work on well-being and working with, with folks who work in public defense. And we have a Facebook group where we had an interesting comment about a class Jenny's about to teach that was dealing with what you're saying, that these classes are, you know, I don't want to take a class that just tells me to meditate and do yoga and exercise and eat well. That's not addressing the underlying problems and in our system and that we're not getting the support from our leaders and we don't see people fighting the big systemic things at the level that we need to. And we really need to address that. We don't need you to tell us to meditate for five minutes a day or whatever you want to tell us. Um, so I think that's a, a challenge. And Jenny, Jenny's addressing that in the course she's doing. And, and we're working with NAPD to develop standards and principles and train the leaders more about their role within this. 
And I think a part of that is the people who are doing the direct service providing for our clients need to see their leaders taking on the bigger fights. And even if they're not winning there, they need to know that the fight is happening and that will help sustain them through the moral injury and the burnout that comes knowing that their boss is, is out also the fighting at that higher level or the, the broader level for things that they care for. Yeah. That, that their bosses have their backs and that they're not just passing down those regulations or those barriers or that friction that they're saying, I've heard you and I'm going to push back for you while you go out and take care of your clients. Yeah. I'll take care of you. I think that's completely, completely true. Um, I think we've moved, you know, sort of in the almost 30 years since I first was connected to public defense in 1991, that the conversation has moved from not talking about well-being at all um, to starting to talk about self-care, which was all like, okay, you have this really hard job. Here's what you need to do to take care of yourself. Do yoga and have the lavender oil and meditate and have gratitude journal and do a bazillion things to take care of yourself. Uh, and now people are sort of, they're sort of over that. They're like, it's not fair to give me 300, 400, 500, 600 cases and tell me that I should be able to withstand anything you throw at me because of lavender oil and yoga. Like that's completely unfair and it's putting all the burden on the individual uh, without really addressing the underlying problem. I think that's a, a really like great frustration like it's a it's a huge step forward that we're taught we used to not be talking about it at all and now we're talking about it and we sort of came out with these initial strategies of let's try to think through how we can all take care of ourselves better um and and now that's sort of moving out you know my own sort of delving into this topic started with like well how can i take care of myself better? How can I do better self-care? I have pretty, pretty complete control over that, what I can do for myself. Um, and now it's sort of radiating out. And, and this moral injury framework has actually helped me clarify those ideas in, in a lot of ways, because, because really looking for like, where are the obstacles and what is the tool or the strategy that matches that ob obstacle? That's the appropriate response. Self-care is not the appropriate response for everything. We need it. I love yoga. I like lavender oil. I like going to the spa. I like all of that. Um, but, you know, that sort of is like getting us through the hardship of all of the things that come at us to, you know, do this very difficult, difficult job. But they're also are all kinds of things in public defense culture, in office culture and management decisions and leadership styles and things that could support public defenders more and have our backs and and be, uh, you know, really client-centered, you know, in the, the ways that we are supported and, and really uh, always be having in mind that question of, like, is this is this management decision making it easier or harder to do right by our clients? Is this management decision making it, is it making more of an obstacle or less of an obstacle to giving our clients the high quality representation that they deserve, that we're trying to provide? You know, and I think there are some leaders who are unintentionally increasing moral injury because they're trying to do one thing with one goal and it's to line defenders 
in court and meeting with clients, it feels like an obstacle, right? And it's, there's huge parallels, I think, in, in medicine when people talk about computerized, computerization of systems and, 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 and I heard in your prior episodes people talking about, you know, sort of medical, the, the, the documents and the insurance and the, like, everything becoming about data and computers. In public defense, we have a total equivalent to that with case ma- all of these offices adopting case management systems and becoming much more computerized and going from paper files to computer files. And there's a lot of great tools in there, collecting data to bring, to do this great systemic litigation about racial impacts and disproportionate impacts. It's great to collect all that data, but sometimes the rollout is really clumsy and time consuming and becomes an obstacle to like the direct service that you're trying to provide in the moment to, to a client, you know? And so those, those kind of like office level public defense culture obstacles and strategies are really important. And there's systemic obstacles and strategies, the like under-resourcing of public defense all throughout the U.S. You know, there's, there's pretty, there are very few places where public defense offices are getting the resources they need to do the job um, at the level that clients deserve. Uh, and that's a systemic problem that needs a systemic response. There's, n- there's never going to be enough yoga in the world to fix that, right? Right. And, you know, what we say is um, that, that those things like um, mindfulness and meditation and yoga, they're necessary to maintain your high-performance machine. But then you also, if you have that Ferrari finely tuned, you can't set it out on a pothole-ridden, riddled road, right? You need to if you expect it to function at the level that you've tuned it to. Um, and, and the other, the other thing we've, we've talked a lot about is that um, we have empathy for our leadership because they know that people are distressed and, and they want solutions, but they don't know necessarily what to do. And we, I think we needed to do the work of burnout to recognize that, it wasn't, it wasn't the ideal approach. And so now once we've tried something and we've tried multiple, you know, we've made one diagnosis, which is burnout, and we've tried multiple treatments that haven't worked. Now let's reconsider the diagnosis. Maybe it's not always burnout. Maybe it is something else along with that. Yeah. As I think about you know, the progression of this work that you know, when I started out and I assume it's the same for Jenny, you know, that the people who were struggling, it was about substance use disorder. And it was, they, they had other outlets. They didn't take care of themselves and divorces. And a, the, the people who stayed with the work were told, suck it up, figure it out. I did. And they did. And so they're, you know, those people who are now in leadership who grew up with that, who, didn't leave because of substance use problems or other issues in their lives that drove them out of the work. You know, they have come around to seeing that that's not appropriate for the most part, that that suck it up response is not what most public defense leaders are doing now. They're and they're trying to say what will help us tell us what we can do. And it becomes then, okay, well, you know, let's do a meditation class you know, at the beginning of this training or we'll offer yoga on weekends or something. And I think that there, that's a, that's one step. But what I hear you and Jenny saying is, you know, there's way more beyond that, that we need to go to. 
And not every public defender leader has even gotten there yet. There's still a lot of suck it up type of approach. And there's a lot of, because we're warriors and we're in this system that is about fighting, there are a lot of people who will take that on themselves. And even if their leader's not doing it, they'll do it themselves and say, well, I'm not going to complain. I'm just going to fight. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work 16 hours a day and not take vacations because if I do, my, I, there's a, that client who's going to suffer because I'm on vacation. If I, I could did one more call Friday before I take the weekend off, there's at least one client who feels like somebody cares about them. So how do I stop and go home to my family Right. if I could just do one more thing? Right. That is a tough place to go. So what would each of you like to see change in the coming year, two, three so in terms of what I think we should do to sustain and support public defenders, um, for me, it comes from these three different levels. I think we do need to keep talking about self-care, right? For the exact reason that that you were saying, Wendy, the sort of like tune the machine, you know, like we got to be able to to go in there and be strong and and clear headed and and fight for clients and listen well. Um, and, and we need to, to keep doing the things individually that we need to do to take care of ourselves. But we also need to be, be sure that we're framing that for people by saying it's not all on you. It's not all your burden. We also recognize that this is just one, one part of it. Um, so that, that that feeling, that, that reaction that people have where they're like, well, don't put it all on me, um, is acknowledged. Uh, that that's only one one part of it, because it's not fair to put it all on people. Um, in public defense culture and in public defense leadership, I think we're just starting to see well-being sort of filter out into all of these different conversations. And some of it is like, well, what if we pilot a mindfulness program in our office one, one afternoon a week? We tried that. I did that for a while in my office. And these, um, these sort of like institutional self-care you know, ideas. But some of it is much bigger. It's leader, it's leader, leader communication styles, you know, asking people, what can we do to support you? Like that would have been unheard of for somebody to ask that, you know, when I started, uh, it was incredibly hierarchical. Don't come bothering me. You know, I can't be bothered with your problems kind of management style. Um, the things that are happening, uh, in training and mentorship, really thinking about how to support people um, in this work are really, uh, really important to to well-being and people in public defense really advocating, um, like thinking, where are these obstacles to people taking care of themselves and responding, you know, from what Jeff was saying before, having boundaries around work hours is huge for public defenders. A lot of public defenders... Uh, you know, in California, we're mostly salaried for 40 hours a week with no overtime. Every public defender I know works two or three times that and is just working lots of evenings and weekends and feeling like it's never enough. And there are always things uh, that aren't left uh, that, that don't get done. And any of those things could be really important to an individual client. And and. And so figuring out individual strategies to take time away to recharge and take vacation is important. But that also has to happen on the office side. Nobody's taken vacation 
when there's no case coverage, there, there aren't effective systems to cover your cases when you take vacation and it feels really punishing to try to go away or come back or your, your, your choice is either you can not take vacation or you can abandon your clients. Um, and nobody's gonna gonna do things for them that are needed while you're while you're gone. Those those there needs to be those kind of responses um, uh, on the within public defense culture. We need to move away from um, from this sort of strength, this sort of macho, be tough enough idea of public defense. Like at every level, we need to rethink. You know, we're storytellers. We're about narratives. Like, I think we need to rethink the basic, like, who do we use in our images and heroes and how we tell the story of who we are as public defenders? Like, I'm tired of seeing Atlas and Sisyphus. I'm tired of seeing public defenders represented as Sisyphus, you know, who's sort of alone doing this thankless, burdensome task that never progresses with no support as punishment for eternity without making any progress. Like, this is not the, like, we need new images, new heroes, new, like, narratives of how we're, like, doing this work together in a supportive way. Um, but in the system level, like, this is where I said I'm going to be bold. Like, we need to really embrace things that completely transform the system. Not little progressive prosecutor tweaks here and there that do slightly less harm, but complete thinking in big ways about completely transforming uh, the system. Thinking about, like, embracing the ways that... Uh, you know, Raj Jayadev at Silicon Valley Debug has this whole participatory defense model that's about public defenders working with uh, clients and their families and communities in these incredibly collaborative ways that bring the community back into the courtroom where they've really been excluded and silenced and disempowered. Right. The lack of resourcing in public defense is not the problem. It's a symptom of the fact that the people, the, the, the way that the people that we represent have been disempowered. Uh, and so, you know, re, you know, the, the episode that you had with the doctor who talked about making the problem bigger and eliminating the waste um, I can't remember his name, but, you know, mass incarceration is incredibly exactly mass incarceration is incredibly uh wasteful and it's not making us safer um and all of these much more transformative ideas about reinvesting in communities and engaging with impacted communities and letting the power and the grow from there and the resources flow to there that is going to empower and bring resources to public defense um that's what's going to going to change um, the biggest obstacle to us providing high quality representation, right? This like forced ineffectiveness that's causing moral injury. That would be the biggest, the single biggest thing to solve it. Yeah. Well, I love your big ideas. Jeff, what about you? Yeah, I like all of what Jenny's saying. You know, I think, you know, my assumption for moral injury is often the solution is money and resources that come from money. And that you have to then allocate them right and and do the right things with them to take on the battles that that Jenny is talking about. So I think that that is the biggest part of this is to get the resources so we can hire more staff and get the work to be an appropriate, reasonable amount of work that people can do at the level they want to do it. I like what Jenny's saying of it's it's bigger than that. We need to change a system that is very broken 
um, or maybe you know, some people who say it's you know works exactly the way it was designed to work. Um, so we need to be able to have the ability to take on the racial injustices that we see and the inequities that we see every day. Um, most public defenders are up that we we took this job because we want to fight those things. Um, so we want to take those on. And if we have the ability to take those on um, and be able to make a difference there, that would that would help a lot with the moral injury aspect of it. Um, I think, you know, another dynamic of it that most public defenders won't dive in with this because it sounds a bit needy or selfish, you know, is shifting the culture about how people view public defenders, that most television shows and movies, you still see them seen as, you know, dressed in crumpled suits and not doing their job well. And, you know, the, the progress that I've seen recently on a show that I like um, was they, they said, you don't want the public defender because they're overworked. It wasn't because they stink. You know, it, they, that was a step forward. It's just a recognition that they were overworked, but you should use this private attorney who's the, the hero in that particular TV show. Um, and we need to shift that. We need to see the public defenders um, as heroes. And we need to be just treated equally in the courthouses. Um, the amount of abuse we take from judges and prosecutors and all the other players in the system um, compared to private criminal defense lawyers is pretty amazing. Um, if you if you go and watch and you see that happen every day. And that's just another kind of straw on the Campbell's back is you know, we go into court and they take all the private attorney's cases first and the public defender is expected to stay until the very end. Um, those things that happen every day are just another aspect of it that we're we're at least equal and in many cases better than the private criminal defense bar around us, but we're not treated that way by the players in the system. And we need to earn that, of course, and and meet that. But once we have it, there there needs to be that respect and that would help on a, on a lower level than these big picture things that Jenny's talking about. Yeah, so, so it sounds like um, maybe not everything to solve moral injury costs money. Maybe it's just about having the docket run alphabetically or having it run, you know, according to, you know, some formula. But I, I love your ideas. I mean, I think, I think between Jenny's big ideas and your your tactical, practical approach and helping to build the respect and just the courtesies into an environment that you walk into every day is critically important to maintaining your sense of professional identity and allowing people to continue to do the work. It's really important. I really appreciate both of you coming on today, and I'm looking forward to what you do to change the field of public defense and um, to staying in close touch so that I, I see what happens. I see how you roll it out. Yeah. I want to thank you, Wendy. You've been participating and helping us on many levels. Um, and thank you for, for your contributions and your ideas as we're working through this with public defense professionals across the country. Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think the best thing we can do is collaborate across fields and learn from each other. Yeah, thanks so much for, for having us today and for 
um, staying engaged with our work group in public defense. And this conversation has just been um, incredibly useful um, to like sort of broad systemic work in public defense to try to support people. And also just to me individually in, in, in terms of being able to show up and do my job every day. So thank you for that. Super. Take care. Uh, one of the things that we mentioned before the episode was just how similar some of the struggles that the public defenders have to some of the clinicians we've spoken to. So, Wendy, what stood out to you as the struggles that they have? It was amazing to me because even having worked with them for the past year or so, I I didn't get until today how how much they're similar, how much their struggles are similar to ours. So it reminded me of Elena Perea's episode where they talked about training to a gold standard and how it's a personal failing if they can't deliver a gold, a gold standard defense, how they're fed up with yoga and meditation as a solution to what they see as systemic problems. Um, they're desperate to see their leadership having their backs and taking on fights so that they can take care of their clients. And here's one of my favorite ones, the fact that <laughs> they're also changing over to electronic records in the same way as we've converted to electronic health records and created enormous challenges. <laughs> right. It's just, it is striking. And they are struggling with it in the same way that it's great to have all that big data, but being an individual who's now also a data clerk, a data entry clerk is just, is really challenging. Sure. So, you know, we've talked before about various solutions and it's so difficult to get at systemic solutions, but I think they came up with a handful of fairly um, concrete ideas. Yeah, the simplest one is give me time to regroup and to do the things that maintain this high performance machine. Let me, let me go for a run. Let me spend a little bit of time with my family. Let me unplug a bit. They talk about the fact that it's not about the individual, it's about the system. Right, right. And, and that simple thing of leaders asking, what do you need to be successful today to, to support people? And building that culture of community resilience. I'll help you today, you help me tomorrow. We're all in this together. Right, and embracing ideas that transform the system as a whole. Right. Not always focusing on the work that I have right in front of me, but also picking your head up and thinking about the bigger picture. Yeah. Well, I think this was great. We, we really thank you for joining us today on Moral Matters. And one little um, exciting thing for us is that this week we hit 3,000 downloads of the uh, podcast. So thank you for downloading and listening. Yeah, that's great. I'm so excited about that. If you want to continue the conversation, you can join us on Facebook at Moral Injury of Healthcare, Instagram at Moral Injury, Twitter at WDeanMD, Simon Talbot MD, and Fix Moral Injury. We're so pleased that you're joining us. We're really excited to have this many people joining us. Please continue to rate us, review us. We're getting a ton of feedback and we really appreciate that. And if you're listening to the podcast, please subscribe to the upcoming episodes, rate us online and review us so that it's easier for other people to find us. 
thank you again for joining us. 